I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Hebrews with me this morning. I'm going to go to Hebrews 6, and I'm going to um, pick up where I left off a few weeks ago and preach one more message in this little series about anchors. But while you're turning there, let me just express my gratitude uh, to you for allowing me and my family to be away uh, last Sunday. While many of you were able to gather with your families during the holiday season of Thanksgiving, uh, me and Kelly and the kids were able to be with my mom and dad down at their place outside of Myrtle Beach and spend several days uh, with them. And I appreciate you understanding and allowing me to do that and not giving me a hard time. Though I had some folks in jest this morning uh, that kind of dug the needle in a little bit and said that they thought I had gotten lost and I forgot where I was and thought I had left. And um, No, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, but thank you for letting me uh, be away. And then Wednesday night, um, Jensen had a sports awards banquet uh, at his school for the fall sports, and uh, they recognized the golf team. So uh, they planned it on Wednesday, and I didn't have anything to, to do with that. But uh, we were able to go, and I did miss church again. Um, so maybe I need to fill a connection card out. Somebody can give me a free gift this morning when I leave. Uh, but here's what I appreciate about you. Thank you for letting me take care of my highest priority first, and that is my family. And while I love you dearly and I have a responsibility and a mandate from heaven to take care of you and shepherd you, my first priority is as a husband and a father. And I thank you for allowing me to do that and to be with my folks during Thanksgiving and then to uh, be with Jensen and to be a part of that awards banquet uh, on Wednesday night. And it was uh, it's nice to be able to be there. and. Uh, just good, capable folks that can fill in for me when I'm gone. I appreciate so much uh, Scott Weaver last Sunday filling this pulpit, Pastor and Sister Weaver's son, and I heard such wonderful things. Actually, I went back and listened to the podcast, and uh, so grateful for his ministry, and I know that he did a wonderful job, and uh, I appreciate him being here and filling this pulpit. And uh, I'm just, I'm glad to be back this morning. I'm glad to get the opportunity to preach to you. It's always nice to have a Sunday off every now and then. Uh, it's good for me to have a break, and it's good for you to have a break and see a different face and hear a different voice, because then you won't get too familiar, and you won't take me for granted, and I won't take you for granted, and the wall will just be all right together. Somebody say amen this morning. I must confess to you before I read, when I, on Wednesday night, we went to, um, to that bank. We know confession's good for the soul, and uh, they had this deal that uh, the different sports teams all had to bring a different item, drinks, food, and so on and so forth. And uh, so we got there, just spread of food, and I just looked at my wife and I said, I'm not eating this food. And she said, why? I said, I don't know these people. So if it's store-bought and I know to see the package, I'm good. But all these strange people that I've never met in my life, I'm not eating this food. So I sat there, and one of Jensen's teammates, his dad, looked at me and said, I'm not eating this food. I said, I'm not either. So everybody sat around the table. The athletic director came by and said, aren't you guys going to eat? I said, no, I'm good. I'm fine. Thank you anyway. So, uh, you know, when you go to church function, I, you know, I can trust all you folks, I, I think, I hope. And, uh, but it's just a little different feel, so I... Uh, you know, Kelly was like, well, we got to eat something. I said, like, you can help yourself. I'm, I'll just be on a 
I'm playing fast maybe just till I get back home. But anyway, confession is good for the soul. So uh, that's, you know, your pastor is wired a little bit weird and has a little bit of issues and, you know, but anyway, I'm glad to be back today and see some familiar faces this morning. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 13. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I preached uh, a message entitled Anchors for the Soul. I preached about one anchor, and I'm going to preach about another anchor this morning, and then next Sunday, um, I'll do a short Christmas message following Pastor Tony's music. It won't be long, and throughout December, I'll preach some of the Christmas uh, seasonal stuff. But let me, let me tie this up today. Hebrews chapter 6, I'll begin in verse 13, read through verse 20. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Here's what the Bible says. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you and multiply, and I will multiply you. And so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. He's speaking of the promise of the son that God would give him in the form of Isaac. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them. An end of all dispute, verse 17, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability or the unchanging of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Verse 20, I'll conclude. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. And the hope that the writer refers to there is the hope that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to conclude today this little two-part message, Anchors for the Soul. Let's pray quickly. I'll let you be seated. Father, thank you today for the Word. Thank you for the treasure that's contained in this book we call the Bible. Lord, I count it my privilege and my honor to stand behind any pulpit on any Sunday. But God, it's a high honor today to be back here and to stand behind this pulpit and to preach to these people. Would you give me what I need today, God, to communicate to them the truth of your word? Would you touch my mind and my memory and help me to recall so I can articulate the truth that you've put in my heart today, God? I lean on you. I've got to have you today, Father. If you don't help me, God, I can't do what you've asked me and instructed me to do today. And touch these people and help them to receive in their hearts today and hear with their ears and see with their eyes the truth of your word. Thank you for what you're going to do in these altars in the next few moments, and I give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, the church said amen. God bless you today. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Pastor Tony, thank you for your help today. <coughs> Just by way of a little review, if you don't mind, because it's been a couple of weeks, let me go back and just uh, rework uh, some of the foundation that I uh, laid for you a couple of weeks ago. An anchor is a device that is normally made of metal. And it is used typically to secure a vessel to the bed of a body of water. 
to keep it from drifting due to wind or current. There's another type of anchoring that's called kedging. And that is a nautical term, and it is when they throw anchors out in front of the boat in order to help that boat make its way through treacherous channels of water. So you've got one type and one form of anchoring that secures and steadies a vessel. And you have another type of anchoring that guides a vessel. So that when the wind blows and the waves beat into the ship, an anchor will secure a ship at sea. And when a ship finds itself in dangerous and difficult waters, an anchor will lead that ship through those waters. As long as the anchor holds, the ship is safe. As long as the anchor holds, the ship is secure. As long as the anchor holds, the ship is steadfast. As long as the anchor holds, the ship is safeguarded. As long as the anchor holds, the ship will stay. I'm reminded of something that I read in the book of Acts chapter 27 as the Apostle Paul is on board a boat and he is headed to Rome to stand trial before Caesar to answer the accusations that had been leveled against him. And Paul finds himself and all of those other prisoners that are on that boat with him that day encounter this horrific storm. The Bible will call it a Eurachlodon, but we know it as a nor'easter. Verse 29 of Acts 27 is intriguing to me because it says and reads like this, lest we should run aground on the rocks. Then fearing, they said, lest we should run aground on the rocks, we dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed that day would come. Paul and those men that were on that boat that day needed something that would secure that vessel. I'd like to submit to you today and suggest to you this morning that in this present day and age and time that we're living in, we desperately need some spiritual anchors for our souls. Life and its daily struggles demand that we have some anchors. Modern day society and its deviation from the truth demand that we have some anchors. The size of the waves and the strength and the direction of the wind demand that we have some anchors. See, if we don't have some spiritual anchors for our souls, spiritual drifting becomes a real possibility. A drifting away, a slipping away from the truth that we, that we know. Let me just re review for you again. Hebrews chapter 6 was written to a group of people who were on the verge of drifting. It is pinned to 
Jewish believers who had stepped out of Judaism and into Christianity. But they were considering reversing their course and going back to the bondage of the law that was found in Judaism because they were afraid of being persecuted. You know I could preach and multitask, did you? <clears throat> and they had stepped out of Judaism into Christianity, and they're considering going back because they're afraid they're going to be persecuted. Theologians and commentators tell us that more than likely the Apostle Paul penned the book of Hebrews. So for sake of argument and debate this morning, I'm going to go with that. And from what I have read and studied, I believe Paul was the author of Hebrews. And Paul tries to convince these people that there is more to be gained in Christ than there is to be lost in Judaism. And he argues for the superiority of Jesus Christ based on the fact that Christ is better than the angels because they worship him. He's better than Moses because he created him. He's better than the Arianic priesthood because he offered one sacrifice for all time, and that settled it once and for all. He's better than the law, Paul tells them, because he mediates a greater covenant. And in Hebrews, the latter part of chapter 5 and even into chapter 6, Paul writes to these people and he confronts them for their lack of spiritual growth, which undoubtedly has contributed to their decision of contemplating and thinking about going back to what they had come out of. He compels them to move forward in their faith. Then he cautions them about spiritual apostasy. Apostasy is a drifting away, a backsliding, a turning away. And when you get to Hebrews chapter 6, just those few verses that I read to you, they are rich, they are full, they are so deep in what they contain as far as the truth. But there's, there's three things that Paul focuses on in chapter 6 in those verses that I read to you. He talks about God's, God's promise that is found in Christ. He talks about God's power that's fulfilled in his covenant. He talks about, about God's people that have a future because of a hope that they have that is connected to Christ. And I don't have to stand here today and even begin to try to convince this congregation that the only hope we have in this world today is the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. Only Jesus is the hope for this world and for us today. 1 Peter 1 and 21, he talks about it being our faith and being our, our hope. And hope accomplishes for the soul. The same thing that an anchor does for a ship. 
For the turbine, it makes it fast, it makes it safe, and it makes it secure. In verse 19 of this, of this text that I read, it's, it's very telling to me. He talks about this hope. And in the hope he's talking about is the hope of Christ. This hope, he said, we have as an anchor for our souls. Paul compares the hope that we have in Christ to an anchor for our soul. And an anchor is typically something that is found outside of a ship. I've been on a boat a time or two or even more. My father and my brothers were, they were avid fishermen, outdoorsmen, hunters. I don't know what happened to me. I'd rather watch a good ball game than sit out in the cold and wait for a deer or sit in a boat and get seasick and try to fish. Just your preference. But I went out several times with my brother and my dad and we... We fished, and when we would drop an anchor, James Hayes, we didn't drop the anchor in the boat. We dropped the anchor outside of the boat in order to secure the boat at a certain place so we could then take a line and cast it and hopefully catch something. And see, an anchor for the soul cannot be something that is part of us. An anchor for the soul has to be something that is external to us. If our souls are going to be secure and our souls are going to be safe in this unsettling time that we're living in, it has to be something that is beyond us and greater than us. And I'd like to tell you today, it has to be, it can only be, it must be the Lord Jesus Christ. The other week I talked to you about an anchor, and uh, originally I had about four different anchors that I wanted to preach about. As we were driving home that a couple of Sundays ago, I mentioned something about having those, and one of I forgot which one of my children said, well, we're sure glad you didn't preach all four, and we'd have been there all day. <laughs> so I only, got, I only got one in the other week. I'm just going to give you one more today. I talked about unwavering confidence a few weeks ago. I talked about a faith and a reliance and a trust that we must have in Christ. Unwavering confidence in spite of. Today, permit me for just a few moments to talk to you about this second anchor. It's an anchor that gives us hope, and it's an anchor that I believe we find that in Christ and that comes through Christ, and it's an anchor I call unshakable courage. You know, this, this day and this age that we are presently living in, I believe that spiritually it demands bravery at its, at its highest level. There is a man that I read about some time ago, give you a little history lesson here, by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte. He was a military and a political leader. A French military and political leader. He served as an emperor. He served as a king. He served as a military uh, general. He rose to prominence during the French Revolution when he made several successful military campaigns during the Revolutionary War. He was known as the Little General 
because he stood five feet and six inches tall. Small in stature, but a man of amazing bravery and courage. Napoleon talked about regular courage and something he called two o'clock in the morning courage. And he said, and I quote, the rarest attribute among generals is two o'clock in the morning courage. And here's what he meant by that. Two o'clock in the morning courage is that courage that faces whatever it is that's standing in front of you. Two o'clock in the morning courage is that when something happens unexpectedly in your life, you face it head on. Two o'clock in the morning courage, Napoleon said, is when you rush out of bed at two or three o'clock in the morning and you look up at something and you face it regardless of what it is. Courage has been defined, one of the definitions in the dictionary, is moral or mental strength to venture, persevere, or withstand Danger, difficulty, or fear. I'd like to submit to you today that we are living in a day and an age and a time that we desperately need some Christian people to have some two o'clock in the morning courage. Two o'clock in the morning courage is seen and heard when Moses stands in front of Pharaoh After 400 years of his people being in bondage and in slavery. And he looks at Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Two o'clock in the morning, courage is seen and it's heard. When Joshua stands with Caleb. And Caleb looks at Joshua at 85 years of age. And says to him, I've been waiting for 45 years for my promised possession. I'm as strong now as I was back then. Joshua, give me this mountain. Two o'clock in the morning, courage is seen and heard when David stands down in a valley And a ten foot tall, uncircumcised Philistine giant, the Bible called him the champion of the Philistines, stands down there belching out and bellowing out blasphemies against the God of Israel. And David, just a teenage shepherd boy, says to him, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied This day, two o'clock in the morning, courage is seen and it's heard when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand in front of a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had given them an ultimatum, either bow or you're going to burn. You will bow to this graven image that we have set up, and if you don't, I'll have my men to heat the furnace seven times hotter. And then what God will save you, and here's what those boys say back to him, if that be the case, oh 
king, the God we serve, is able to deliver us from this blazing, fiery furnace. And king, we also want you to know that he will deliver us from your hand. But they then say something else, and it gets a little bit better. But if not, O king, let it be known to you this day. We do not serve your gods, nor will we bow down and worship the image that you have set up. Two o'clock in the morning, courage is seen and heard. When the apostle Peter writes, God, I feel the Holy Ghost touching me right here. First Peter 4 and 12, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. It would be the Apostle Peter, who didn't consider himself worthy to die a death like Jesus Christ. Yes, he would be crucified and he would die like Christ only. He would be crucified upside down, hanging on a cross because in his estimation, Pastor Jeremy, he was not worthy to die like the man who gave his life for him. Two o'clock in the morning, courage is seen and heard as our suffering Savior hangs on a cross, blood dripping from every place imaginable in his body. He takes his bearded chin, he cradles it upon his bloody chest, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He utters three more words and says, it is finished. I want you to know it was courage in the highest form. He didn't say I am finished. He said it is finished. The work is done. Victory has been won. It was courage. It was love that would drive him to lay himself willingly on a cross and suffer for us and die for us and bleed for us. I want somebody in this place to know today that regardless of what you're facing there is a courage and there is a strength that only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll help you face today. It'll help you face tomorrow. It'll help you face next week knowing everything is going to be all right. God, come on if you believe it and praise the Lord. Must be this new tie I got on, Brother Turpin. $8.99, you can look good for cheap, I'm convinced. I'm reminded of the story of Joshua, the young leader who would take the reins of leadership. Actually, he wouldn't take the reins. He would be given the reins by God from Moses. God had just finished preaching Moses' funeral on the top of Mount Nebo. You realize that? Go back and read your Bible, Deuteronomy 34. God preached the funeral of Moses and buried him somewhere on Mount Nebo. I mean, could you imagine what that eulogy sounded like? God himself preached the funeral. Read it. And now, Moses has brought the people to the, to the brink of a promised land. He didn't get to finish what he started. But God had a, already had a man that had been under the tutelage and the tutoring and the training of Moses. His name was Joshua. And the reins of leadership are passed over to Joshua. He now has probably in his mind and in his estimation the unenviable, unenviable task of taking these people from where they are to the place God said that he wants them to go, the promised land. 
his first test as a leader, his first item on the agenda would be to take two million people, cross a Jordan River that was overflowing its banks, the Bible says at the time of harvest, a raging river out of control, to take them across Jordan, to go in and conquer Jericho, and then begin to possess the land. Obviously, Joshua had some trepidation. Obviously, Joshua had some fear about what was before him. God understood that. So God, in the book that is named after the leader Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 9, not once, not twice, but three times. Aren't you glad that God is always gracious and gives us everything we need when we need it? Here's what he says to him. Joshua, verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Verse 7, Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. Do you, do, do you see, the, do you see the, the, the gradual process? Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. And then in verse 9, he says, be strong and of good courage, but he doesn't stop there. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, <clears throat> for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do, do you see that? Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Okay, God. But God knew that. That's probably not enough for him. Joshua, only be strong. Be very courageous. Okay, God, I think I've got this. Okay, Joshua, one more time. Do not be afraid nor dismayed because wherever you go, I'm going with you. And it was that spoken word of courage that would do something to the heart of that young leader, Brother Turpin. And you follow the story, Joshua chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, when they cross the Jordan. All of a sudden, he gathers the officers together and starts dishing out instructions and commands. Do this, go here, do this, go here. Tell the people this, tell them that. What was it, Pastor? It was courage that came from God. There's things, listen, that will come our way that are bigger than us and stronger than us. And the only way that we can face them is with that 2 o'clock in the morning courage, Aunt B, that only comes from God himself. And if overwhelming confidence happens in spite of, unwavering confidence happens in spite of, unshakable courage happens in the face of. Because there are some things that you will stand face-to-face and nose-to-nose with. And only the courage that God gives will help you to deal with it. It's courage in the face of your greatest fear. I'm going to ask a question today, and I expect complete cooperation. Is there anybody in here that you've got some things that you just, you are fearful about at times in your life? You can have courage in the face of your greatest fear. You can have courage in the face of your greatest foe. You can have courage in the face of your greatest frustrations. You can have courage in the face of your greatest failure. You can have courage in the face of your greatest misfortune. 
You can have courage in the face of your greatest family struggle. You can have courage in the face of your greatest financial strain. Pastor, where do I get it? Where does it come from? I'm telling you, it only comes from God himself that will touch your heart and give you a courage and a boldness and a bravery to say that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And if God is for me, nobody can be against me. It's the courage that God gives us to face whatever it is that's staring us down was John Wayne, the great theologian John Wayne, who said, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyways. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Sometimes you just got to hop on. You got to hang on. And you got to hope beyond hope that Christ is going to infuse you with the courage that you need to face whatever it is. Psalm 27 is an interesting passage. Verse 1 is powerful the way that he starts it. Then when he concludes verse 14, it's even greater. And the verse is in between. But here's what he says in Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom... Shall I be afraid? You know what that says to me? God will give us direction when we need it. And he gets down to verse, or verse 1. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I fear? And then he goes on down in verse 14. Here's what he says. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. And he shall strengthen thy... He didn't say your hands. Didn't say your arms, didn't say your legs. He said, He will strengthen thine heart. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now, for those of you that are impatient, you don't want me to tell you that courage and waiting do go hand in hand. But it's interesting, He said, heart. You know what the heart is? The heart is the center. Of man's emotions. Anybody ever see the Wizard of Oz? You remember the cowardly lion? You remember what was wrong with him? He didn't have any courage, but something happened. Did they ever get to see the wizard? It's going to give him courage. Listen, I want to tell you today that you, you may at times, I promise you, there are times that in your flesh you will look at whatever it is that you're dealing with and there will come a cowardly spirit on you because that's how we operate in the flesh. The flesh is cowardly. Now, I want to help somebody today so that you don't beat yourself up and say, well, pastor, it's... I know the Bible says God can't give us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. And, but pastor, I deal with fear and worry and sometimes I feel like a coward. I don't have much courage. Congratulations and welcome to the, the, to, the, to the club of the flesh. That's what your flesh is supposed to do. But at some point, we have to trigger this thing called the spirit man or the spirit woman. And when that is triggered, I'm telling you that a coward is replaced with courage. And fear is replaced with 
strength. And not, there will come times in your life that you, will, that you will be in places and seasons and you'll see things and you'll experience things and everything within you, within your flesh will crowd say, oh my God in heaven, what am I going to do? I can't do this. And you're absolutely, positively right. You can't do it. But when God comes down and touches a man's heart and God comes down and touches a woman's heart, I can say to you, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he will strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say on the Lord, God will replace that heart of fear with a heart of courage. You'll pull yourself up and you'll go out and face whatever it is that you're having to face. Only the courage that God gives. I was reading sometime back through the Old Testament and I'm going to close here. Give me, give me 10 minutes. And I was reading, I've read several times about these you remember King David? He had these mighty men that, that, that surrounded him, these warriors, these officers in his army that helped him with battle. And there were some mighty men that I read about recently that I was very intrigued by. 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through 21. There was a man, one man they talked about. His name was Josheb Bashibeth. Aren't you glad you weren't born in the Bible times? Anybody expecting? I got a name for you. If you got a little boy, we'll call him Joseph Bishibeth. And the Bible said that he went down and killed 800 men at one time. Now, I believe the, listen, I believe the Bible is absolutely true. There's another man that David had that fought with him. His name was, was Eleazar. And the Bible says that David and some of his men had gathered together and had defied the Philistines. And the Philistines rose up to attack back, and the Bible said that the men of Israel retreated. But there was Eleazar, the Bible said, and he fought with the Philistines until his hand, watch this now, his hand, it said, stuck to the sword. He fought, the Bible said, until he grew so weary, his hand stuck to the sword. And he attacked the Philistines, and the Bible says that God brought about a great victory. There's another man. Another mighty man, warrior David had. His name was Shammah. And the Bible said that he had a, the Bible calls it a harvest of lentils. That's the real proper name. I'm going to tell you what it was. It was a pea patch. And the Bible says that the Philistines had gathered together in a troop, thinking they were going to steal his harvest and steal those peas from him. And the Bible says that Shammah stationed himself in the middle of that pea patch. And he defended it, and he slew the Philistines, and God brought about a great victory. Let me tell you about one more. His name was Benaniah. And the Bible says that he killed two lion-like heroes. He went down into a pit with a lion on a snowy day. What do you think the odds are of winning that battle? Down into a pit with a 500-pound beast on a snowy day, mind you, and the Bible said he killed the lion. Oh, Pastor, that's just that's figurative speech there. Don't fool yourself. It's the truth of Scripture. And then it says this about Ben and I, that there was this, the Bible called him a spectacular, imposing Egyptian warrior. It was posing a threat. 
The Bible said, Benaniah took his staff. A staff now. What are you going to do with a staff? Took his staff in his hand and went and wrestled the spear from the hand of that Egyptian warrior and killed the Egyptian warrior with his own spear. You know what that is? You know what those men had that allowed them to do that? You know what they had? They had courage. They said, you're bigger than us, you're stronger than us, you're more skilled than us, you're more gifted than us, you're more qualified than us, but there's something we've got on the inside of us that you probably don't have, and it's a courage, and it didn't come from King David, but it came from the King of Kings. It came from Jehovah. I'm telling somebody today, God will give you the strength that you need to face whatever it is that you're facing. Billy Graham the great Billy Graham, he said that courage is contagious. He said when a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. Listen, we need some, listen, I'm telling you, we're living in a culture and a time, we need some Christians to have some spiritual backbone and take a stand and find a cause and fight for it. Pastor Tony, come to the keys, please, if you don't mind. Just, just you for now. I don't need any singers, anybody. Just let him come play soft. I want to, I want to close with this, this story. I, I read it some time back, and I, I filed it away in my memory bank. As I prepared this, it, my mind was triggered. I went back, and I, I found the resource where I had read the story. It was reported back in October of 2015 uh, that the that Islamic State militants had captured uh, 12 missionaries outside of a, of a little village in Syria called Aleppo. They were captured on August the 7th, 2015. The 12 of them were, were taken by ISIS, and they were questioned about what they were doing there why they were there, and if they indeed were Christians, had they converted from Islam to Christianity. The 12 missionaries admitted that they had absolutely converted from Islam to Christianity, in which you have to understand that that is uh, a crime that is punishable by death in the Islamic culture. So, the Islamic State, they, they demanded that they renounce Christ and that they convert back to Islam. This was reported by a, a group in Virginia that had sent out some workers and some missionaries over there. There was a, a missionary director who had gotten reports from eyewitnesses there, so this story is not fabricated. And they said that they would never, ever renounce their love for Christ, ever. So they were divided. The folks that were taken captive were divided into two groups. They took eight of them into one village and took four of them into another village. The group of four consisted of a 41-year-old man who was the ministry leader, his 12-year-old son, <clears throat> and two other Christian workers. 
The Islamic State began to, again, question them. Three weeks later now, they divide them into to two groups, August the 28th. They begin to question them, again, this group of four, and again demanded that they renounce their faith in Christ and convert back to Islam. And they just said, listen, we're not going to do it. We believe God sent us here to this area to spread the gospel. During their time there, they'd established nine house churches. They're very resolute and said, listen, we're just, we're not going to do it. God sent us here. We're sent here to spread the gospel. We're not converting back to Islam or we're never going to renounce Christ. Eventually, those four would meet their fate by being crucified by the Islamic State. But just prior to their crucifixion, which after they had crucified them, they had left them beside a sign that identified them as infidels to die. Their bodies were left on the crosses for two days. They were, nobody was allowed to touch them or take them down. Just prior to the crucifixion, the Islamic State took the 12-year-old boy and began to cut off his fingertips in front of the father and force the father to watch. They began to beat the boy severely. I mean, sheer torture and forcing the father to watch looked at the father and said, the torture will stop only if you renounce Christ to convert back to Islam. And the father said, I'm not doing it. God sent me here. So then they took the father, began to severely beat him, would take the other two and would, they would meet their death by being crucified on a cross. The eight, the eight other people, at the same time were in a, another village being questioned and there were two women in that group 129 and 133 eventually all eight of them would be beheaded that's how they would meet their fate but prior to that the Islamic State took the 29 year old and the 33 year old and with villagers all around public watching they raped them over and over and severely beat them. When it was done, they forced all eight of them to kneel down on the ground. Eyewitnesses would say that as they were on their knees awaiting to be beheaded, that every one of them could be heard praying very loudly. They said that some were praying in the name of Jesus. They said some were looking up toward heaven and commending their spirits to God. They said there was one lady there who was looking up toward heaven and almost had this smile on her face like she had seen Jesus. As they knelt on the ground and prayed, the Islamic State came by one by one and severed their heads from their bodies. When they were done, those eight bodies were hung on crosses and just left there. director of that group the reports that he received said that those 12 gave their lives literally for a cause that they 
prayed and cried out to Jesus to their very last breath. He said they did it as the villagers stood and watched. They did it as a testimony to those people. Last thing, and I'm going I'm to have a stand. I, I've recently been, been reading about quite possibly one of the greatest preachers ever, certainly one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. Adrian Wilson Tozer. Probably, not probably, he is one of the greatest preachers, one of the greatest writers of any time, but certainly of his age, his era. Brother Tozer pastored the Southside Alliance Church in Chicago for many years, very prominent church. He said he would come to the office and he had a pair of coveralls in his closet. He'd wear a suit and tie to the office every day. Had a pair of coveralls and he would, when he got into the office, he'd slip those coveralls on so he could lay on the floor and he could pray for hours. I recently read a biography that somebody had written and I'm now reading a book that was actually first written in 1948. It's called Pursuit of His Presence. And while some of the language is a little, it's a little harder to digest, I'm telling you the wealth and the depth that's in that book and that man. He would leave uh, Southside Alliance Church and would have one more pastorate at the Avenue Road Church in, in uh, Toronto. And at one particular time, in the latter part of his ministry, he was having a personal struggle. And he, he enlisted his church for some, some prayer help. And I quote, he said, pray for me. In light of the struggles of our times, now we're talking you know, late 50s, early 60s. And when you read some of his writings, some of the things that he said, I mean, he was so prophetic. It's almost like he could peer into the day and age we're living in right now. He said, pray for me. In light of the struggles of our times, he said, pray that I will be willing to let my Christian standard and my Christian experience cost me something right down to the last gasp. Pray for me. Man, I read that. It struck a nerve in me this week. You talk about a man of courage. Pray for me. Pray for me that I'll be willing to let my Christian standards and my Christian experience cost me something. Right down to the last gasp, the last breath. Eventually... Pastor Tozer scheduled to preach that night before he'd ever get to the pulpit he would die of a heart attack I'm telling you today that there's a courage that God will give us to face whatever it is that's in front of us hands and welcome the Spirit. I feel the Spirit of the Lord hovering right here. 
I feel him touching somebody and whispering to you, fear not. Fear not, for I am with you, the Lord says. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. I hear the Holy Spirit touching somebody today saying, Yea, though you might walk through a valley of a shadow of death, you don't have to fear any evil, for I'm with you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. I'll anoint your head with oil. You know what that means, don't you? God will give you what you need to do whatever it is he has tasked you to do. God, I feel the Holy Ghost touching us today. Lord Jesus. I hear the Holy Spirit telling somebody that I've not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. I hear the Holy Spirit telling somebody today, Psalm 56 and 3, what time I'm afraid I'll trust in you. And I hear him saying, trust me. It may be big and it may be bold and it may look bad. But I hear the Holy Spirit today telling me to tell somebody, tell them I'll give them the strength they need to handle it. I'll give them the strength they need to deal with it. Have you not known and have you not heard? The everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He neither faints nor is he weary. He gives power to the faint and to him that has no might. He increases strength. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like an eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's an old Chinese proverb that says the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. I know the step of faith may look daunting, but there's a courage that God's going to give you to look at it, to stare it down and say, my God is bigger than you are and God is able. I wish you'd stand with me today. I sense God in this place.